Hello and welcome to Better Words. My name is Caitlin and I'm just a bookish babe and that was Percy the punk. <laughs> We've uh, locked him upstairs but he's still letting you all know he's here. Um, don't forget about him. I'm Michelle and I'm from the Unfinished Bookshelf and I do <laughs> apologise for my dog. He is out of control. No, it's fine. He's like a character in the podcast now. He's just <laughs> always there barking. Yeah. Yeah. What have you been up to? It's been a while since we talked. Oh, it has. So now you would think that since it's been a fortnight since we gave you a proper in- intro now that I'd have so much more to say, but I kind of don't. Um, so I am have finished reading Carve the Mark now by Veronica Roth and have started reading The Fates Divide, which I'm really, really enjoying and I'm so, so excited because Brisbane Writers Festival is next week. Oh, I can't believe it. That's oh, so crazy. But um, I actually would love to talk to you about this, Michelle. So what have you just finished reading? I just finished reading Insurgent. Yeah. She'd yeah. never read the Divergent series before. <laughs> I don't so, know how. It just kind of – actually, you know what I think it was? It came out when I was kind of discovering Australian young adult mm-hmm. when I started blogging and stuff. So I kind of like, I don't know, went just down that left path. It yeah. 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 So, so what faction do you think you'd be? <laughs> oh, erudite. <laughs> no, well, I don't know, though, because, like, I don't think that your intellect like, rules all. Oh, I don't know, because, like, I feel like, which one's the kindest one? Is that Amity? Amity, yeah. I feel like maybe I'd be like that, like a kind of, you know, yeah, I don't know, it's a toss-up between erudite and... Amity, I think. Mm. Mm. So you, I couldn't be Candor. Yeah, no. God, I can't be with I, that. I don't know if I could be Candor. I think definitely I'd be Amity. <laughs> yeah, like I definitely, I don't, yeah, I really don't know. Like I like, obviously I am like we joke about being like Hermione Granger all the time and stuff like that and I do love learning. But, but even Hermione's not a Ravenclaw. Yeah, I know, but it's because she picked Gryffindor. Yeah, like, I know. yeah, yeah. Um, See, and I don't think either of us are brave enough to choose Dauntless. Like, yeah, if we were to, you know, or Gryffindor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, but I think that if it, if it's like going on your whole lifestyle, like, see, maybe I'm being swayed because I know what erudite's really about. So, like, that's yeah. already swaying me because, like, I don't want to be like in the evil Slytherin house. Yeah, <laughs> it's so bad. But um, I do kind of think that. I'd maybe be Amity because hmm. I do, yeah, I don't know. And also I kind I of like they're a bit like hippie and like. Yeah, I think it's really interesting though because obviously this is the whole point of the series is that you are not just one thing. Yes, you know, you're divergent. You're divergent. We're all divergent. Um, but it is interesting to think about because I think we all have aspects like that that are stronger, which is obviously how they choose their functions. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. The other crazy thing that I'm so not, I'm trying to think of, I was about to say so not ready to talk about, but I am ready to talk about thinking more, can't stop talking about it, I think is what I meant to say, <laughs> is to all the boys I loved before. Oh, man, it was so cute. I really didn't know how I'd feel about it, even though everyone in the world is loving it. Because but you've not read the books I've not either. read the books. Yeah. Um, I want to now. <laughs> um, I think they might be fun to read, like, you know, 
on a plane, like travel yeah. reads possibly. Apparently you just can't get them anywhere in Australia at the moment. They're like selling out. Oh, I'm sure out. they're selling out it's everywhere. It's so brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I think that's amazing. Mm. Obviously, you know, that's obviously they deserve that. Mm. Um, but, I mean, I've watched the movie twice, everybody. It's very <laughs> cute. I'm so glad that it's just on Netflix and I already paid for Netflix because, like, I mean, with Love, Simon, if we compare, yeah, I did pay to see that twice. <laughs> but a cinema ticket here is about the cost of my monthly subscription to Netflix. So do you get the premium Netflix? Well, I pay for my entire family. You're welcome. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Do you? Yeah, because I was the one who wanted it and so, I wanted to use no it. No way. Yeah. You moved out. I know. <laughs> What the hell? So now even technically I'm paying for six people because my roommate uses it as well. She just uses my name. <sighs> Those bludges. I reckon. That's so unfair. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, anyway. But on that movie, we love it. We all want our own Peter. You are watching it very oh, Literally, um, Caitlin got here tonight and knocked on the door and I woke up from where I'd fallen asleep on the couch watching To All The Boys I'd Loved Before. Um, <laughs> to clarify, so, because she was extremely tired, not because she didn't like it. Oh, and also because I'm just one of those people that falls asleep all the time. There was this really funny stand-up on TV the other night that we just turned the TV on and he was talking about it, how there are just some people and they just fall asleep who, and everything. It's like, like put just... a movie on, fall asleep. Um, and that's literally me. Like mm-hmm. as soon as I would actually, it's, look, guys, it's a struggle, okay, because I would go to classes for uni and as soon as they dim the lights and the lecturer starts talking, I'm just like head nodding. Oh, like no. I've nearly fallen asleep in court reporting <laughs> not once but multiple times oh wow I because do not it's have that very boring and I just I'm like do I have like narcolepsy like what the hell is <laughs> wrong with me why can't I keep my eyes open I was in a council meeting a few weeks ago and I thought I was hiding the fact that I was nearly falling asleep really well and then one of the people was like are you okay I was like yeah I just I feel a bit sick yeah I was like, oh my god <laughs> Like, it's a genuine problem in my life. It really is. I wish I didn't fall asleep so easily. So, anyway, I lay down to watch this movie, got all comfortable, fell asleep. So, yeah. (laughs) I am enjoying what I have seen of it, though, which is about 20 minutes. I think it's very cute so far. Yeah. I'm really loving the colour palette, too. Oh, my God. very cute. The whole colour palette of the movie is so aesthetically pleasing. Her little, like, ombre drawers. Oh. Oh, so cute. Everything is just like mint green and pale pink, and I love it. So so cute. So I yeah, I'm, I'm definitely. Oh my gosh! Speaking of movies, you know what we need to talk about? Veronica Mars. Yes, oh! I'm so excited. So I don't subscribe to Hulu, but congratulations, you just got yourself a new subscriber. Me too. Yeah, absolutely. We'll pay anything to see this. I know, and it will be amazing because. With like Rob Thomas and Kristen Bell. I said Kristen Stewart. Oh my god. No, wrong. Um, I'm so bad with names. Um, with them on board, like clearly it's going it to be amazing. amazing. Like Rob Thomas will. They won't let have it the not integrity. be amazing. Yeah, and like I thought the movie was incredible. Um, oh, and now we get more. I know. 
<laughs> so the books were really good too and that was obviously following like that was co-written by Rob Thomas too um so I think it's clear that if the original production team are like involved then it will be quite in like um quite true to the Veronica that we know and mm. the story that we know and given everybody came back for the movie. I can't imagine that they won't come Yeah, back. I'm like, pretty I, sure everyone we'll except get... maybe Piz. Sorry, Piz. <laughs> I, I feel like he's not going to come back. I actually I wrote a blog post about this and I said at the start, you know, like there are reboots all the time. They can be hit and miss. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Will and Grace has been well-received. Yeah. Um, Gilmore Girls, very mixed. Um, Roseanne, obviously. Incredibly mixed. Very bad. (laughs) Um, Charmed, I haven't seen the new one, but I thought the trailer was, like, I was glad with the casting. I thought that was really cool, but I thought it was weird that they... Isn't Charmed basically just a remake? It's not a reboot. Well, yeah, it kind of is, and that's what I thought was a bit weird. Like I thought they could have, like they're basically telling the same story again. Again, yeah. And that to me just doesn't, like Charmed isn't, oh, I guess 20 years is, I don't know, it just seemed to me I was like, a bit odd. there's enough in that universe that you could make it you could have kept. new because, yeah. because if the house is there and the girls are in the house and they can have some sort of connection to the original girls, you know, and you can keep that that history of what happened mm. in the house and with all the other girls into the future. Like it's not a, a show where you necessarily have to remake it. You could do a con- continuation. Continuation, yeah. So, yeah, that was, a, that was a bit disappointing, but I haven't seen it. So it could be awesome and I'm open to seeing it and mm. seeing if it was awesome. Um, but even though, like, they did remakes of, like, The Worst Witch and stuff from when – did you ever yeah, watch that one? Like, I used yeah, I love The Worst Witch. I can't bring I myself to watch it. it I don't because... want to watch the new one. I don't want it to wreck it all. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but, like, it seems like – It won't like, be the same. It seems like everything and we're not the is audience a reboot for that, and a yeah. remake and – Yeah. And it's it's just – it's obviously, yeah, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I'm going to bet that, you know, Veronica, Veronica Mars works. works. Yeah. And you know what? Let's just hope that Dax Shepherd gets a better story oh arc this time. Gosh. I love that though. I love I that know. he's the drunk guy hitting on her. Um the only thing that I'm sad about is that it's a limited season. Um, because obviously like the more the better. And original Veronica Mars seasons were like twenty four episodes exactly. long. But nothing's twenty four episodes long now. No. Though. Like well, except, actually the good place. Oh place. yeah, because it actually airs on TV. Yeah, nothing that's straight to streaming. Is, yes, is. and the other thing is, I guess it's twenty minutes ep- episodes rather than like an hour. So if you cut down the time, it probably would even out. Oh yeah, the good place. Oh yeah, the good place is like basically classic sitcom format, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Which also really excited that that's coming back now yeah, that I've good caught place. up. Now that I've seen it. I wish that had been around when I was doing a philosophy class at uni. I tell you I what, oh, my goodness. So Even cool. better than the boring old lecturer we have. Exactly. Cheedy. Oh, Cheedy is the best. Cheedy is the best. I <laughs> wish Cheedy had taught me ethics. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, what else has happened since we talked? Oh, I watched Mamma Mia 2. Loved it. Oh, good. Good, Loved good, good. It. Really? I saw Crazy Rich Asians. Oh, oh my yes. God. I can't wait to see that. I will see it again with you. Okay, great. Yeah. So, Girls' Night, good. Yeah. Um, Mamma Mia 2 loved the choice of music. I love yes. the choice of the songs. Yeah, me too. It was really good. 
the thing the was young boys were so hot they were oh my god um i also found myself actually kind of um what's the word oh i kept comparing it to the first one because they did do technically the only song they repeated in the show like was mm. mamma mia mm. which of course yeah totally acceptable but like Waterloo was the first movie's credit song. Mm-hmm. Super Troopers was in the first movie and was this movie's credit song or mm. something, you know. And like, um, they had a there are mix so of many popular and and other other yeah. like lesser known. But yeah, like I shout out to like Kisses of Fire, Angel Eyes. Mm. They're ones that I really love that never get played. Also, when I kissed a teacher, I was excited that that was the first song because I used to love that when I was yeah. eight and it was probably highly inappropriate oh, that I yeah. did. But I used to dance yeah. around in my parents' love, bedroom to it. I love ABBA. <laughs> and, like, you're right, though, even though, like, we all know most of these songs anyway, it's like Waterloo, Mamma Mia, Dancing Queen. Yeah, everyone like, unless on. you went through an actual ABBA phase like I did, then mm. you probably don't know I those do. songs. We did the 70s when I was at in year 11 um there was like a 70s unit for some reason every class had a decade that's cool yeah I did my assignment on ABBA oh that's so cool yeah Yeah, well when I was eight um before I obviously got into the Beatles and stuff I had a huge ABBA phase Mm -hmm. where that's all I listened to um before that was Elvis Presley because Lilo and Stitch I know I know wonder why I had no friends when I was growing up (laughs) I do love Lilo and Stitch. That's funny. but yeah, Lilo and Stitch got me into Elvis. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, when I was fourteen, it was the Beatles, and I've never looked back since. <laughs> um, Thank but God yeah, you have like at the present though, oh with Aaron my God, and like, Sharon, But how do I have any friends ever? <laughs> Such a loser. Uh, um, and on that note, let's continue <laughs> on our um, discussion and interview with our special guest about a book that's all about friendship. And nature, which no, I've got to we say, like, well, actually, you're quite familiar with your family go camping. Yeah. Yeah. I refuse to go camping. I'm just not an outdoors person. No. You'd be proud of me, though. In the UK, we did lots of walking outside. So oh, congratulations. Fogs and stuff. So I was like, Jack, let's go on a hike. Like, it was, it's funny. Like, I've never felt that. Because here it's, like, all sticky. Yeah, no, and it's a bit of an effort. And also, like, already I'm starting to think, I don't think I can work, walk to work anymore because oh, it's, it's nearly magpie swooping season. Oh, exactly. No. Exactly. You're risking your safety. You know, I'm risking my eyes. I'm risking my life. Like, you don't want to scratch in the back of your head. Also, with my history with birds, it's like I'm a a moving target. So I'm going to stay inside and read this book. Yeah. (laughs) Enjoy our interview. Our guest this week is an author whose first novel was shortlisted for the 2011 Queensland Premier's Literary Award. After a long career in nursing, our guest studied a Master of Arts in Creative Writing and continues to help budding writers with a number of workshops run through the Queensland Writers' Centre. Her second novel, The Geography of Friendship, was released in July. Welcome Sally Piper to Better Words. Hello, Michelle and Caitlin, and thanks for having me in to chat with you. It's our pleasure. Yes, thank you for joining us. Um, Michelle is has just started reading The Geography of Friendship, but um, I read it, I think I finished it about a week ago. Um, I really enjoyed it. I have to be honest, I, I have been struggling recently with like reading books that are very descriptive and I don't 
I don't really know what it is. I just, I think I read one and I was like, oh God, get on with it. And I was like, <laughs> didn't know what was going on. But then when I read your book, it was very, I mean, there's so much about the nature and their feelings and I'm making it sound so stupid, but um, the way that it, like very descriptive and all the internal monologue and everything, I really enjoyed. So I think that probably <laughs> says something about your writing oh. because it's not usually a style that I enjoy. Thank you. That's it's quite a meditative start to it or ruminative, I guess, is, is how it's been described as well. And that's partly to set up the mm. characters, I guess, and where they've come from to be where they are on the present day of when they get started yeah. in the story. Speaking of where they come from, I'm really fascinated to know how you got into writing given your career in nursing. Yeah, that was a big jump, wasn't it, really, when you think about it? I was, <laughs> I go from a science-based career to a creative one and it was a big transition. Um, I nursed for nearly 20 years and the last 10 years of that was spent in neurosurgical critical care. Uh, and then, wow. yeah, I went back to work after my first child was born and then when we had our second child, my husband actually got offered a position work in the UK. Um, and he's a bit of a gypsy, I think, so thought it was just a good opportunity to work abroad We'd, we had worked abroad before before we had children but this was you know a great opportunity to do it again so I headed off with my husband and a two-week-old baby and a three-year-old and gave up nursing after the birth of that second child anyway but then we moved to the UK but when I got there it was um I went from this really busy critical care work environment that was very exciting and stimulating and challenging and all those things and then became a mum, which, you know, I don't undervalue the job, but there's a certain intellectual stimulation, I guess, that was taken away from me by um, being confined mm -hmm. to home with small children. So it was actually when I was in the UK that I started writing and it was really because time, I'd been given time then to do it. I had got one day of childcare for my youngest, the baby, uh, one day a week and I joined a writing group at a uh, art centre while my eldest son, older son was at school then. So that was where it all began. And I think really the the impetus was that I had time given back to me and I needed to pursue something else. And I was looking at sort of originally writing children's fiction because that's, I think, where I was at that stage in my life and started writing some kids' books that looked at healthcare and different things, sort of incorporating my nursing career into that fiction writing. So I describe it as insulin um, hero meets um sugar villain sort of thing and, and all <laughs> hell breaks loose in the body. So I started writing this, what I thought wouldn't be a hard thing to do. And then, of course, all writing is difficult, whether you're writing for children or adults or non-fiction or fiction. And that's why I joined the writers group because I just realised I had absolutely no idea where to start. So that's probably a long, <laughs> a long answer to a short question. <laughs> No, that's, no, that's so, what we like on this show. It's so interesting though. Was writing something that you were always, I guess, interested in like at school or no. you know, when you were younger? You no, know, I wasn't. And this is, I guess, one of the odd things and I try and look back on that period of time and um, what where it, 
the idea to actually start writing is um, I'd always been a letter writer. I travelled a lot in my early 20s and, you know, that was well before the internet and email and everything. So I was always a, a letter writer. And a nursing friend of mine, actually, that I kept up written communication with for many years, uh, she when we did catch up at one stage because we live in different places she said you know you should write she said I feel like you're in the room with me when I receive your letters because it was just this you know some letters are quite formally structured but I think I I didn't write that way and she said I just feel like you're here with me telling me a story of what you've been doing she said you should write and she told me that several years before I started writing and then I think when I found that I did have time given back to me when I did finish with my nursing career I thought you know that's something maybe I should try maybe I could do that I wasn't sure because I'd come from this really sciencey background all my education and um, you know all the subjects I did at high school were all science subjects I was hopeless at writing and hopeless in English at, <laughs> at school but um, yeah I guess I think I maybe I needed to be at the right time of my life to have something to say where I could write I guess was perhaps part of it as well. That's really nice, isn't it? That it yeah. was just the good time. You know, you do you do one thing for a while, then you do another thing, and it if you tried to do them at different times, it probably wouldn't have worked out so well. Yeah, I think um, I don't think it would have, and I think I needed to do that twenty year nursing career because um, you know, especially working in critical care, that nursing teaches you a lot about what it is to be a human, what our fragilities are, and and how vulnerable we are, and the powerlessness of being in those situations you know I used to work with people who are at their most vulnerable and I used to look at them and think my god you're so resilient in confronted with this and then of course there are others who who weren't and some families these traumas that came into their life were too much and these families disintegrated and I'd watch that beginning to happen even at the critical care level where I was working before that even progressed on to rehabilitation if that was possible so you learn a lot about what it is to be human just by being in that environment and that is never, ever far from my writing now. So, hmm. well, wow. I'd love to expand on that a little bit more um, and ask you, you know, in what other ways has your medical background influenced your writing? Yeah, I think, um, well, if I look to my first novel, you know, the main character in it was a nurse and I guess that was me writing from a position of something I knew from an occupational perspective. But I think probably the greater influence that nursing had on Grace's Table, my first novel, is it, it's a, one of the themes of the story is it looks, it looks at grief and how there's a, a certain expectation around how people should grieve and often in Western society we're expected to grieve to make other people feel comfortable around us, not necessarily to help us with our grief. And I mean, I was confronted mm -hmm. with the grief of patients and their extended family and friends every single shift that I went to work. So I think grief was always something that I used to look at it and think, gosh, this is just such a complex, complex phenomenon and, and it's not ever the same for any one person. So, you know, that certainly fed into my first novel. And then I think probably with this second novel, The Geography of Friendship, it looks a lot at trauma and the legacy of trauma. And so I would have these patients that would come into the critical care unit I, I worked on and I knew those people when they left, they were never going to be the same again because a lot of them had had head injuries. And just you know it, 
you think, well, what is the consequences of moment, a split second decision or a, a split second mistake and your whole life is turned on its head and then you have this legacy of trauma that comes with that, that has this impact, not just with the person who suffered the trauma, but um, the whole, everybody that's concerned with that person. So, and while the trauma that I look at in the geography of friendship isn't a, um, a physical trauma, like from a head injury or a motor vehicle accident or any of those sorts of things, trauma is something you never grow beyond. It is always with you. It, it lives in tandem with you if you've experienced a major trauma and it defines you in the mm. present and it continues to define you in the future. So I think that's something that probably nursing has also fed into the writing of this second novel in a fairly sort of um, partially removed way. But, you know, again, it's about what it is to be human and how things affect us and, and affects our futures. Yeah, so. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the way you've just explained that, it makes complete sense. <laughs> um, and that is a major theme in the book, how, you know, these past events and their friendship and how, you know, things have changed have affected their entire lives. Um, and it's explored really well um, in the, you know, sort of flashbacks and going between the times. Um, but the other thing that they explore <laughs> is all the nature on their hike. Yeah. So you are really into nature and bushwalking and is that just something that, you thought, oh, I want to write about someone going on a hike. Well, you know, I, I'm a self-confessed nature nerd and I and I have no embarrassment in admitting that. I love anything to do with nature. <laughs> I was brought up in a rural area, so I was brought up on the land. And, I, you know, you just learn everything about the seasons and how the integration of nature and the symbiosis of everything, it all it's all meant to be integrated. And, of course, we're not allowing for that quite as much as we're used to, but that's another story for another <laughs> podcast. But um, and I've always been a keen bushwalker. My parents were bushwalkers, and you know, bushwalking for me began because I had to keep up. I was the youngest of three, and I had to get those legs going and and just learn to love being in the bush with it. And it's funny when I decided to write the geography of friendship because um, I'm a mostly solo bushwalker, and as a female, there's certain restrictions mm -hmm. around doing that. And I guess it's interesting, when I wrote The Geography Friendship, I very much wrote it for myself in the first instance, which isn't how I generally approach anything I write. I think about a wider audience and, and appeal for them and relevance to them. But it was very much for me in writing The Geography of Friendship, it was about unpacking the fear I have in doing this loved activity, which is bushwalking on my own, and looking at why I was fearful, what factors out there were causing me to be fearful with risks associated with being a solo woman anywhere. And so really it's sort of that, that novel grew from my desire to unpack my own fear essentially. So, yeah, and it, it morphed into something completely different in the process. But but that was, I think, and, and yet the story writes about the very thing that I, I fear that my vulnerability will come up against the ill intent of someone else when I'm out bushwalking. But for me, writing towards that fear allowed me to walk away from it because I unpacked where that fear came from, how much of it was real from, from my own personal experience and how much of it had become a habit of mine that I should be fearful because I'm told I should be. So, yeah, it was a lot to um, unpack in that book and it was quite satisfying to do that from a personal perspective. 
yeah that's just fascinating Mm -hmm. um I but I so agree though in that you know knowing about things that you're afraid of can help you overcome them um like I think I think maybe that's one of the reasons I'm so interested in true crime is if by somehow knowing a lot of stuff about it can kind of help make it less likely to happen and I, I know <laughs> I know that sounds irrational but um it doesn't I mean I'll, the girls I'll, on my favorite murder yeah. which I listen to all the time they they say that too that like they're anxious about this stuff so they talk about it and that mm-hmm. makes them feel less anxious and I think it's the same sort of thing it's obviously a cathartic experience for you writing this it book it is and it's because the same with your your true crime it's it's confronting the boogeyman you know, it's confronting those mm. things that, that do terrify us and say, and being able to compartmentalise it, I guess. So you can look at that true crime and say that happened to that person and, yes, we're all at risk of that happening, but that doesn't mean it is going to happen to me. But if we don't stop and think maybe it won't happen to me, I guess what I'm saying is that as women we self-limit ourselves on the pretense that we will become that victim. Um, and so we live much smaller lives as a consequence. We don't allow ourselves to do certain things because we see inherent danger in it. When um, it maybe it's for me, it was about, and you know, I'm not speaking for every woman here, I'm speaking for myself. For me, it was about looking at that sense of fear I had and saying, okay, how much of this is realistic? And how much am I um, making Projecting. it worse for myself? Yeah, yeah. But in saying that, I know there are places none of us should go on our own as well, you know. Certainly it's a balance. It's a, it's about assessing your environment, not insu- assuming every environment is inherent with danger. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess then to the more realistic side of their hike um were there any um spaces or places where you've traveled that inspired the story yes yeah when I started I I used to live in South Gippsland in Victoria and that's where and all my early bushwalking began on Wilson's Promontory in Victoria Mm -hmm. and I decided it's never named for there in the book um because I had to deconstruct the the landscape quite a bit to accommodate what I needed it to do because there's a, there's a, for a start, there's a lighthouse on Wilson's Promontory because the novel is very loosely based on Wilson's Promontory. So I had to remove the lighthouse. It's on the most southern tip. I had to, there's a gorge scene within the novel and there, I had to introduce a gorge. I, visually I brought that in from <laughs> Carnarvon Gorge. So I had to sort of reconfigure the, the landscape a bit. But I knew I wanted it to set be set there because I knew um, Wilson's Promontory as a much younger person um, and there's a time shift within the novel. So the women go, they go as young women, as 20-year-old women, they do the hike, bad things happen, and then they return 24 years later to confront that hike. So it, it needed to be a shift in time, obviously, with what the environment and how that would have changed. So I felt that I knew Wilson's Promontory at least 24 years ago, so I could imagine it in its less trammelled mm-hmm. state. Um and I thought, and I know what national parks are like now. They're, you know, much more people using them. Yeah, you know, there's, there's a, the landscape is far more scarred by there's the signs impact. and tables. So and... I thought, right, that's a great. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, when I travelled on Wilson's Promontory, as the girls do on their first hike, there was no toilets, there was no running water, there was the camping sites were much less cleared than what they are now. So I, you know, I could see that shift, but when it came to actually 
writing this environment, my most my fondest childhood memories are spent on Wilson's Promage. It's an idyllic place. It's a beautiful place. I had such fun there. But then I had to create this environment that was menacing and treacherous and dangerous. And I found that I couldn't, because I could only write about it from this position of nostalgia, I couldn't write about it from a place of menace. So I decided I needed to go back to Wilson's Promise. I hadn't been there for nearly 40 years. So um, I set off and I did the five-day hike that I planned for my characters and I did a solo bushwalk down and did the circuit around Wilson's Promontory and walked in the steps that I expected my characters to walk in. And that was probably one of the best um, things that I could have done to contribute to the novel, to be honest. It made a huge difference to the way I wrote that novel and how I perceived that landscape that those girls were walking through. That's amazing. I was actually just going to ask if you went back and did the hike again. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Was there anything you learnt yourself um, about yourself reflecting on your past journeys? Yeah, it's interesting. I think I learned I was far more resilient than I thought I was because I was anxious mm-hmm. about doing it. And, you know, for a lot of women, it w- wouldn't have been such a, a a big deal to do something like that. I'm sure there's plenty of solo women walkers out there and they know oh, I know there are and they do far more adventurous things than me. But for me, it was an adventurous thing. Um, and so, yeah, I learned that I was a lot more resilient than I thought I could be because uh, I had to carry my own pack you know when you walk with others you share things like first aid kits and lighting and cooking gear but when you Mm. when you're a solo hiker you've got to carry everything that will you know keep you safe and protected um from an environmental sort of um perspective so you have got to carry all that yourself so it's heavy so and it was interesting the um just it made me realize when I went to Wilson's Prom as a child that the landscape um, I only went to a tiny area of it and I had to walk 55 kilometres of it on this circuit. So I went to a lot bigger area of Wilson's Prom than what even my memory had certainly remembered. So that really contributed to to mapping this landscape accurately um, and evocatively in, in the story. And, you know, it was an interesting thing. When, where I walk in around Brisbane, they're mostly fire trails, so they're quite wide and the trees are cut back from um, there's a space you know above the canopy doesn't necessarily mm. hang right over the the trail but in Wilson's Promontory they're much narrower trails and the canopy hangs over the the um the track but and what that does to sound is really interesting it you get this incredible quietness but it's a quietness that doesn't transmit sound so I would have a hiker come up behind me and I wouldn't even know they were coming or one would suddenly be in front of me and startle me and I thought well gosh that's exactly how it would have been for these women when they were doing Mm -hmm. their hike and that's something I perhaps wouldn't have considered quite so much had I not been there on my own with my mindset there for looking for things that would make me feel vulnerable and the other thing was the granite Uh, Wilson's Promontory is renowned for these massive granite headlands and boulders that are there but they are very sinister. They cast these freaky shadows and have these little corners and crevices and places to hide and flat tops where people could lurk on them. And so just all these details that I wouldn't otherwise have picked up had I not gone back there. So no, it was just such a, a, a great experience personally and for, creatively, yeah. So. Wow. <laughs> 
I mean, yeah. it must have contributed to your writing so much. And it's so interesting that you then did it again. Um, and I wanted to ask you, because the geography of friendship follows Samantha, Lisa and Nicole on the hike in their early 20s, like you said, and then again in their 40s, why yeah. did you want to write both, I guess, both sides of the story and revisiting the hike um, rather than just, say, the first time they went? Yeah, it was um, going back to that incidence of trauma, I guess, and and um, that I was talking about in relation to my nursing. One of the things I wanted to look, apart from women's inherent fear in public spaces where they shouldn't fear, feel, feel fearful but do, I wanted to look at the legacy of trauma. I wanted to look at how it changes lives. So these three young women experience awful things in their 20s and it has this impact upon their life forevermore after that. So it alters, it, it um, takes away their confidence, it um, takes away their courage, they lose self-esteem as a consequence of it, they fail to build relationships or the relationships they build become damaged and mm-hmm. I just wanted to look at all those different impacts that trauma can have on a life where it does alter the way you live. There is a legacy with it and it has a very long tail and you can't always grow away or separate yourself from the consequences of that trauma. So that's why I needed to look at the two periods in their lives really to see who they were as young innocents, to lose their innocence and then to see the consequences of that loss of innocence as um, 44-year-old women. so And I think many women could relate to that experience of, of, you know, having a terrible experience in their adolescence or their early 20s and that that does alter the way they live going forward. So that was something I was most interested in sort of exploring that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, and I think you're right, I think a lot of people can relate to those experiences. So the novel obviously explores female friendship, but it also looks at relationships between men and women um, and the complexities of all those different types of relationships. Why was that something you wanted to explore in the novel? Yeah, I'll start with the female friendship um, aspect of it. It... um, because it goes right back to when these girls meet as adolescents in high school and, you know, often that's when some of our strongest friendships are forged. But often, but they're also some of the most fraught periods of our lives in for women in, in forging those friendships as well. And often the friendships that do form in high school or even primary school are forged in sameness. So the girl who the girls who think, do, dress and act the same way become a group. They become their own clique. And then the other bunch over the other mm-hmm. side that think, dress, do and act their way become their little group. But with um, the three characters in the geography of friendship, Lisa, Samantha and Nicole, they actually come together by their differences. So we've got Lisa, she's the feisty girl, she's the angry one, and we've got Samantha who's always the peacekeeper and wants to keep harmony within the group. And then you've got Nicole who's a rule follower and believes if everybody follows the, the, the rules to everything, then life is right, life is how it should be. And they were all misfits within the greater collection of girls within their school, but together they complemented one another. And um, people who have read the book, who are friends of mine, say, oh, which girl are you when they, when they read it? So, <laughs> Lisa 
or in Samantha or in Nicole and I say, well, actually, I'm all three of them. <laughs> and I think yeah. all women are all three of them. You know, sometimes we are angry. Sometimes we need to be peacekeepers and sometimes we need to be real followers. Sometimes we just have to be what is needed to get through certain situations or to create harmony within our families or friendships. And so I think we each and all women are something of these three characters. So that was one of the things I wanted to explore with that early friendship stuff was the differences between women and what unites women. But ultimately, it's those differences in those three young women that fractures their friendship as well. It's those things that, that mm-hmm. those very differences that end up pulling them their friendship apart. Uh, with mm. the um, sort of masculinity thing with within the story is um, there's few characters in this story that are named to be honest the man who is the the bad guy at the heart of the story I never name him and that's quite in, intentional and and people say oh is he the every man and it's actually a word I don't like the every man because you know I'm the mother of two young adult sons and I like to think that they're good men and most men mm. are good men um, so what I try to create with him is this sense that he could be any man, not every man. So he's not named. He's um, In fact, he's not even fleshed out enormously and he's almost becomes this sense of the thing that we all fear as women is there's this person out there that could harm us. And so he comes to embrace that that fear that we have in our minds. And Lisa, one of the characters who's the angry feisty one, even often denies his existence. And it's almost like she refuses to accept her fear where the other two quite readily accept their fear. And then when you look at the other male characters within the story who don't form a huge part of it, it's looking more at, um, and that Samantha has three sons and it's looking at the way she parents those differently and she parents them in a way that her trauma has influenced so she doesn't call them out necessarily when they do things that they shouldn't do and looking at different Mm. types of masculinity because there's as many types of masculinity as there are femininity and I also wanted to to look at that so you know it's not just a feminist text because the women in this story are, are very imperfect as as the men in the story are imperfect and that's what it is to be human so um, yeah, I haven't glossed up the women in this story at all, I don't think. <laughs> no, and I think that's that's really interesting. You know, they are so real and raw and the way they think about their, the other men in their lives, um, particularly Samantha with her sons and her husband um, while they're yeah. revisiting this hike is very interesting because, I mean, I'm sure there was a line in there somewhere where she was literally like, oh, I oh, this man, he tormented us or, you know, something. I'm paraphrasing extremely, obviously. (laughs) But, oh, this man. And then she goes, oh, all men are terrible. And then she's like, wait, I have sons. (laughs) And I think that's something that a lot of women um, do struggle with is that they, you know, they know that, you know, so many people unfortunately do bad things every day. Um, and I'm sure every mother of a of a son just hopes that their sons are nev- never become like that and, and never do anything why, to hurt yeah. anybody. Yeah, and, you know, the great bulk of them don't. The great bulk mm. of them are respectful to women and, unfortunately, the ones that aren't are the ones that... Um, yeah, it gives the rest the of them a bad well, name. They should get the airtime too because it's such a negative experience for everybody. And And this is, you know, one of the things that I talk about with this book is that, um, you know, we talk about 
the things within the geography of friendship, we call them women's issues or feminist issues, the same as we talk about Indigenous issues or we talk about refugees issues. And so all those people that aren't women or aren't Indigenous or aren't refugee glaze over and think, oh, well, that's not my issue. So mm. I would like the language to change around these things that this, this book looks at and call them human rights issue because then it becomes a collective problem for society you know this is something we should all be addressing it's not just for women to keep themselves safe which is you know where all this press is coming around with you know when anything happens to a woman within a public space immediately it's women keep yourself safe instead of looking at the the forces that dictate that we must do that so that was um and while the novel looks at the downside of not keeping yourself safe what I was trying to do was actually look at the masculine systems that are in place that means we should or must keep ourselves safe so it was sort of trying to tip it on its head I guess yeah yeah (laughs) um so this is obviously your second novel you mentioned Grace's Table before um what did you learn from the publication of Grace's Table and was there anything you kind of set out and intended to do differently when writing The Geography of Friendship? Uh, you know, it's. I think what I learnt with Grace's Table is that um, well, it's, it's tough to get published, obviously. I think that their doors are open for you and serendipity strikes. And I guess with being shortlisted for the Queensland Premier's Literary Award in, in 2011, and whilst it didn't win, so it's not guaranteed publication from that, it's it put a little spotlight on it. And then I won a Varuna Publishing Fellowship for that unpublished manuscript, so another little spotlight was put on it. And so getting published with your first novel is so much often good luck and serendipity, and I'm sure there are... are so many wonderful unpublished first novels out there that are just looking for that moment of attention that um, brings it to the eye of getting it under the, the right no, eyes of the right publisher for that book. So someone else might have looked at Grace's Table and thought, no, that's not for me. But fortunately, UQP looked at it and thought, yes, this is a book that fits with them. So I guess that is a probably a little bit of advice for other writers out there is that don't stop trying to send it out there that find the right person for your book and I think that's what I learned with Grace's Table but then with the geography of friendship so I have I've built my relationship with my publisher then and I think that is an equally important thing that that I feel you know a great fondness for my publisher because they're really great to work with and they embrace the story that I wrote which is a very different story again and from a personal perspective I think that's possibly something that's important to me that um, to, to write something different each time and to push the boundaries of what I know and what I feel so that I can know and feel more about a particular topic and that um, with this second novel was certainly something that's um, come to the fore to my mind is that it, it ended up a very different novel to what I expected and um, I'm really thrilled that it has because I think it pushed me to write it. It's a very complicated narrative. You've got these dual timelines, you've got flashbacks and so you've got parallel lives and multi-narratives and they're all interweaving in and out of one another and that was quite structurally quite complex to, um, to pull all that together. But I'm 
really glad I did because I think it stretched me as a writer to do that and um, makes me more confident going forward with whatever I work on next. Yeah, exactly. Exploring different things and learning more about each, I guess, experience and then, you know, onwards and upwards, I suppose, (laughs) even though, you know, not that the previous books are (laughs) bad at all. But, um, well, then you've just said what you happen to work on next. Is there anything else in the works that we can look forward to? Oh, gosh, not any time soon, I don't think. I, I, <laughs> I have a funny approach to writing. I start, you can't see me waving my hands around here, but I do a lot of hand waving. So if you can imagine me drawing with my hands this great big canvas like a painting on a wall, and that's where I start. So within that big canvas is um, issues and themes that are important to me or that make me angry or make me passionate about what's happening with those themes. So within that canvas are these big themes and then right down in the very bottom tiny corner of it is the novel. So I'm still <laughs> at the big canvas stage and I've got all big ideas. about. I'm, I'm still interested in this intersection of history and geography, which is a lot of what the, um, the geography of friendship is about and, and how land mm. and landscapes that we live upon and experiences we have on there, especially if they carry a terrible history, can impact upon us. So I'm, I'm interested in continuing to explore that um, but as yet, I haven't really got the characters to do that yet, but they're there, they're simmering away. I, I was saying to a group I was chatting to the other day, I, I do um, job interviews for my characters. So it's a bit like going to characterseek.com in my brain and finding someone in there and I interview them. And if they answer properly some of the questions I ask them, they get the job. <laughs> I love that. That's so great. I think that's a great um, great way to describe it. How- yeah coming up with different characters and all the big ideas out there I just guess you've just got to refine them a bit more into the next story and because I always start too big and within that bigness which I'm sure isn't a word but it is now within that that (laughs) great big canvas is the story and it's sort of whittling away all that other stuff that informs the story but isn't the story yeah so um I'm still at that stage wonderful thank you so much for joining us today Sally we've really enjoyed it thank you and thanks for um taking the time to chat with me and for your interest in my books I really appreciate it it's great thanks Hmm. it's our pleasure um where can people find you if they want to follow you online now yeah um I have um, I'm pretty partial to Instagram actually because I think it's kind it's visual (laughs) um, I love it it's just such a nice medium I'm not much of a Twitterer it can sort of become a bit nasty but no I'm at sally.piper.writer on Instagram and I have a website where people can contact me personally on a contact page there and that's sallypiper.com so um, yeah always happy to receive any notes from um, from readers if there's something they want to talk about with the book always happy to hear from them so yeah that's fantastic and of course everyone can find us at better words pod and betterwordspodcast.com for all the details in our newsletter patreon episodes show notes contacting us blah 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 blah. um (laughs) thanks so much again for joining us sally and for taking the time out of your weekend and guys we'll see you next week okay bye bye